hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. When you're fully immersed in virtual reality, your brain doesn't make the difference between what is real and what is not at that point. It's taking everything for reality. Today on the show, we'll talk about virtual reality technology and its power to persuade, and maybe its power to deceive. And we'll meet Karim Ben Khalifa. He's a photojournalist who's traveled the world covering wars and conflict zones. And now he's the director of a stunning museum exhibit that gives visitors a new way to think about wars and the people who fight them. Really, my interest was, can you look at those people in the eyes? Can they look you in the eyes? And what is happening when two people look at themselves in the eyes? There is a connection, whether we want it or not. Ben Khalifa's project is a technological coming-of-age story because it shows that virtual reality is finally starting to deliver on its promise as a medium for education and storytelling. But it's also a cautionary tale because it shows how convincing virtual reality can be. So convincing that it's easy to imagine how a less scrupulous storyteller could use it to generate fake outrage and make wars worse, not better. That's all coming up right now. I'm Wade Rausch, and this is Soonish. It's a podcast from the high tech hub of Boston, where we ask what the future will look like and how each of us can make it our own. Because the future is shaped by technology, but technology is shaped by us. If you remember the previous episode, I talked with authors Kelly Wienersmith and Zach Wienersmith about their book, Soonish. 10 Emerging Technologies That'll Improve and or Ruin Everything. And Zach pointed something out during the interview that I think is so true. There are certain technologies that everybody expects are right around the corner, but that never actually seem to get here. Yeah, I remember when we were writing it, I was thinking about a friend of mine who, who kind of got into the whole futurology scene for a while. And I remember him telling me once, like, he, he finally had to just sort of cut the cord on it and he stopped checking all these blogs and stuff. And I said, why? And he said, well, it's just frustrating because you get this idea that everything's going to change like next week and then nothing seems to ever happen. I feel like people are having that right now about self-driving cars. Like it's, it's been going to happen next week for like five years now. The oldest example of a technology that never quite gets here is nuclear fusion. If you talk to energy researchers, the running joke is that practical nuclear fusion technology is 30 years away and always will be. That's why when Kelly and Zach chose a title for their book, and when I was naming this podcast, we didn't say soon, we said soon-ish. But there's another technology that spent decades being hyped as the next big thing, without ever seeming quite ready for the mainstream, and that's virtual reality. It's the idea that somebody wearing a video headset and other interactive gear can enter a simulated 3D environment and interact with that environment simply by looking around or walking around or grabbing things. VR feels futuristic because it's been featured in so many science fiction films, but the concept has actually been around since the 1970s. It's old enough that it was already kind of a joke when Jonathan Larson wrote the Broadway musical Rent. And Collins will recount his exploits as anarchist, including the television successful reprogramming of the MIT virtual reality equipment to self-destruct and then broadcast the word actual reality, act up, fight age. And that, boys and girls, was more than 20 years ago, in 1996. But here's the thing. Sometimes the technology does catch up with the hype. I can't tell you when we're going to get nuclear fusion or self-driving cars. But virtual reality is finally here. 
I know this firsthand because I've had a couple of VR experiences this year that were frankly mind-blowing. One was called Mission ISS, and it was a simulation of life on board the International Space Station made by a software company in Los Angeles called Magnopus. It was incredibly detailed, and it even managed to sort of simulate the experience of flying around in zero-g. When I tried out Mission ISS, I happened to be hanging out with an actual NASA astronaut named Katie Coleman. She said it was the closest thing to being back on the space station since she spent six months there in 2011. Mission ISS was a voyage into space, but my second VR experience was a voyage into the human mind. It was called The Enemy, and it was open to the public this fall in the form of an exhibit at the MIT Museum in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I think it marks an important turning point for VR technology. Up to now, the medium has been used mostly for entertainment, but the enemy is trying to use it for enlightenment. The exhibit gives you a chance to interact with avatars representing real fighters from conflicts in Israel and the occupied territories, El Salvador, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. You hear their actual voices, along with English translations of what they're saying, and you start to understand why they fight, and who they hate, and what they hope for. The enemy is the brainchild of Karim Ben Khalifa, who comes from a family in Tunisia, grew up in Belgium, and currently lives in France. He created the exhibit after spending years chronicling wars around the world through his photography. I covered the war in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria, in Yemen, uh, in Israel, Palestine, of course, uh, in Somalia, I mean, really Kashmir, name it North Korea. Been just traveling a lot and, and going to the darkest place of this world, uh, but it hasn't made me pessimistic. It has made me optimistic, actually, uh, because uh, I'll just one thing: it's about human beings. It's about stories. In the exhibit, he wanted to tell the stories of the people who actually do the fighting and the killing in these wars, and find out what they believe about their enemies. Uh, there was always a reason why they fight. There was always a misunderstanding to some extent. There was always a, a stereotype about the other. If we don't listen to those reasons, we don't understand the people. If we don't understand the people, how can we stop fighting? So we, we need to, 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 to learn to live together one way or another at the end of the day. It's a process. It's a very long process. But I want to be part of that process. I want to, and, and that means rehumanizing the other. The exhibit went to Paris and Tel Aviv before it came to MIT. And everywhere it's been shown, people have commented on how easy it is to humanize the avatars and forget that they're just 3D recreations. And once I saw it, I totally agreed. It's actually a little scary how effective the whole thing is. But before I describe the enemy in more detail, I want to warn you that the exhibit deals with some pretty violent situations. So please use discretion if younger ears are listening. Also, I want to take care of some definitions. The term virtual reality gets applied to several different types of productions these days. I'm mainly talking about the kind of VR where there's a simulated 3D environment projected through a stereo headset. That's the classic type of VR you see in science fiction. But what's a little confusing is that the term VR is also being used these days to describe something that's completely different, namely 360-degree films. With VR movies, you can look in any direction by moving your head, but you can't move around inside the environment, and you only get to see what the camera saw. News organizations like the New York Times have been making a lot of these 360-degree films lately, and some of them are really amazing. But you experience them passively, not interactively. We'll talk more about VR films later. But for now, just keep in mind that the enemy is the first kind of VR, a computer-generated, fully immersive, and interactive environment. It used to be that you could only experience that kind of VR in a lab with expensive equipment. 
But now you can get pretty great consumer-grade VR headsets like the HTC Vive or the Oculus Rift for under $1,000. The Enemy runs on the Oculus Rift headset. And because the environment represented inside the exhibit is so large, you wind up doing a lot of walking. And that means you have to strap 8 pounds of computers and batteries onto your back before you start. Which is kind of an odd way to start a museum visit. First of all, it's strange to call it an exhibit because we had to basically clear the whole of our ground floor gallery uh, to make way for this. This is John Durant. He's the director of the MIT Museum and a friend and former colleague from my MIT days. So at first sight, uh, the gallery looks as if it has nothing in it, which is really strange. There's a little bit of sort of equipment standing off on one side, which makes you wonder. But then, of course, if you go in the museum on a normal open day and look in this apparently empty space, you suddenly see strange figures moving slowly around in it, and they're all wearing VR headsets. And you begin to realize that something quite special is happening here. The best way I can describe this is that in each room, you have the opportunity to confront, in turn, two different people. And they are, as far as I can tell, real people in the world. But they're real, real people in the world who have been multiply photographed and interviewed by um, Karim Ben Khalifa. And what happens when you approach them is, first of all, they make eye contact with you which again, for to have a virtual character making eye contact is for me a new experience. And secondly, somebody, you, know, you don't really know who, over your shoulder starts asking them questions. But as you listen to them, you begin to get a sense of the way the world looks to this person. And that, I think, to me, is the center of the experience of the enemy, getting to know the way the world looks to a series of six different characters who have rather special stories to tell. Is your first strap. Okay. Second strap. And there's also straps on the sides if you'd like. Yep, okay. Additional support. All right. We're going to be starting in a few seconds. Putting my glasses in my pocket. I'm watching a credit screen. More than 5 million deaths in eastern Congo. Almost 70 years of war between Palestinians and Israelis. Men, women, children facing other men, other women, and other children, who, guided by fear, have discovered hatred. This is a never-ending cycle of violence. I'd like to take you on a journey to meet some of those fighters. For this, could you please stand up now, as some of them are here, waiting for you. Oh, cool. <laughs> Virtual curtains just uh, swung aside. This is really... Unbelievable. The registration um, and the 3D effect, I feel like I really am in a museum. Okay. Jean de Dieu could be mistaken for a 15 years old child soldier who has come to talk about war. Yet, he is 32 years old and has spent 22 of them fighting with the FDLR, the Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda. Okay, there's a 3D avatar of Jean de Dieu talking to me. His gaze tracks me as I move. He's kind of like pretty short. He's like 5'5". Five, five. Oh. Hello. How are you? This is so strange. What is your name? How old are you? What is your rank and your arm group? My name is Musanin Yange Gahekenya Jean de Dieu. I'm 32 years old. My rank 
is chief warrant officer within the FDLR. Who's your enemy? The Congolese are my enemies because they are allied with the Tutsi. What is violence for you? I was just a little kid when I left Rwanda. We lived in refugee camps in Mungunga and then Kibumba, where we were attacked and forced out. Those who attacked us killed my mother and my father right before my eyes. They were chasing us through the refugee camp in Kibumba, running after us, and they caught my parents. They struck one of them on the head with a pickaxe and the other one with a club also on the head. They struck them so hard that they broke their skulls and their brains splattered onto me, just a little kid. Those horrible things I saw affected me mentally and physically. I don't think this war can possibly end unless by some kind of miracle. Jean de Dieu, what is peace for you? Peace? In short, peace is something good. It's what allows you to live well, calmly, with your neighbor, your fellow man. Wow, this is amazing. When I get too close to him, he leans back a little bit, like I'm getting into his personal space. When I move around, his eyes track me, and he waved goodbye to me. Wow. Okay. Now I'm talking with Passion. My name is Passion Caboy. I'm a soldier, and I hold the rank of sergeant. This guy moves more, gestures more. Passion, who's your enemy? My enemies are the Mai Mai of the NDC and the FDLR. They're the ones who came to threaten me in Congo. They threaten the population. They steal their wealth and rape them. People die. They are the ones I consider my enemy. What makes you think your enemy is inhuman? What shows me that my enemy is inhuman is when I realize he has no human values. He wants to stay in the forest as part of the rebellion, like a savage. He thinks like a savage, not like a human being, since only beasts live in the forest. Passion, what is peace for you? Peace is a good thing, because in times of peace, children study peacefully and freely. And we, as soldiers or military personnel, we would be peaceful and we would not be dying all the time. The population wouldn't be dying like this for nothing, and we in the military wouldn't either. Let there be peace. Peace is a good thing. The sense that these people, these avatars, are looking at you is just inescapable. It's really, really haunting. Okay, I'm done talking to the Passion. That was pretty remarkable. Bye-bye. Incredibly realistic. I feel like I, I'd like to interview him and just stick my mic in his face. But he wouldn't see it. In the second room, there were two members from rival gangs in San Salvador. And in the third room, I met a reservist in the Israeli army and a Palestinian fighter from the Gaza Strip. What tied the three rooms together was the way Ben Khalifa asked each fighter the same basic set of questions. The more answers I heard, the more I realized these people aren't that different from each other. And it turns out that's exactly the point Ben Khalifa was trying to make. Like, what's wrong with you guys? Why are you killing each other? Because from my point of view here, from my perspective, that doesn't make sense. You, you guys are the same. Your difference are, they're so small. And, and this is what I realized really on the ground, talking with fighters from one side or the other. It's like, wow, there's so much more similarities in between themselves than they, they want to acknowledge. 
Now, it's fair to ask why you need to build a complex, expensive VR exhibit to make this simple point. Couldn't you say the same thing about our shared humanity through a photo essay in a magazine or a newspaper? Well, here's the thing. Ben Khalifa is a professional photojournalist, and even he thinks traditional news photography is losing its impact. As just one example, he points to the famous photo of the three-year-old Kurdish boy whose body washed up on a beach in Turkey in 2015 after his family tried to flee the conflict in Syria. I think when you, when you think about that photograph, sadly it should be something that makes us move, all of us. I mean, at least every single parent in the world should react to this and say, that could be my kid. And maybe to some extent it did for a second, but didn't stick around. I think we've been flooded with image. We've got, I mean, there is so many billions of images that have been created every day. Of course, we don't see all those images, but we see every day thousands and thousands of images. And we don't have the same emotional um, relation with photos that we, that we used to have. And if you think about wars, what can you, again, what can you do about it? So I see, I see the works of photogenists as myself, the way I was. Um, I was hoping to change, I was hoping to have an impact, I was hoping to, to be able to influence those wars uh, and realize I wasn't. The original idea for the enemy was to see whether VR might be able to do a better job of changing people's minds about war. I had a vision, I was, was just putting you into my shoes and getting to meet the people that I wanted. Because I really wanted to organize a meeting and I think it's really difficult to do that as a, uh, as in, in a movie, in a documentary or in photographs. Really my interest was, can you look at those people in the eyes? Can they look you in the eyes? And what is happening when two people look at themselves in the eyes? There is a connection. Whether we want it or not, something is happening. You like it or you don't, but it doesn't leave you, um, you know, blank like a, like a TV screen, like a 2D screen can, can do. So I was really interested in, in exploring this um, with no certainty that it would work. Actually making it work took several years, lots of money, and a huge crew of filmmakers and programmers. To give you a sense of the sprawling nature of the project, and to give credit where it's due, the list of collaborators included the National Film Board of Canada, the French companies Camera, Lucida, and Emissive, a digital studio in Montreal called DPT, and a division of France Television called France TV Nouvelle Écriture. The team's basic method was to travel to each conflict zone, set up a studio, and interview the fighters. They captured video from multiple angles, while also scanning the fighters in three dimensions using a Kinect sensor from a Microsoft Xbox. Developers then used all that digital data to reconstruct avatars of the fighters and give them incredibly realistic skin and clothing and lifelike movements. To me, it was the eye-tracking feature that really solidified the illusion that these were real people. I felt an almost irresistible temptation to say hello and goodbye to the avatars. I've noticed this with younger generation. Uh, I've noticed much more emotion, I mean, raw emotion, you know, like kids that want to take Jean de Dieu, the Congolese, in their arm, but he's not there, so like they, they, they cross their arm, uh, or, or telling them, I understand you, uh, or telling them bye-bye, stay safe. Uh, no, we've seen, we've seen a lot of, 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 of reaction, and, 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 and yeah, of course I love that. Now, there's a whole layer to the experience that I haven't talked about yet. Ben Khalifa thought up the idea for the enemy in 2013 while he was at MIT on a fellowship. While he was there, he became friends with a professor of digital media and artificial intelligence named Fox Harrell. 
Harrell was researching how VR and other media can mutate or present different points of view depending on the user's actions. In fact, he wrote a whole book about that idea called Phantasmal Media. In some way, Karam was doing something much like uh, this kind of Rashomon effect. Um, I've been interested in how you can use algorithmic processes in AI to trigger these kind of effects. And so I, you know, so I already was, you know, not just the content or the ethos, but also that part of the structure appealed to me. Harrell joined up with the project, and he helped Ben Khalifa build a system that surveys visitors before they enter about their attitudes toward war. Then it monitors them on camera as they go through the museum space and interact with each fighter. The way people respond to the survey winds up determining which fighter they meet first and last. And the way they behave around the fighters influences things like how the whole experience ends, and even the weather that visitors see through the skylights in the virtual gallery. And the categories could be considerations such as whether you are more biased towards one side or the other going into the experience, whether you're uncomfortable or nervous with people on one side compared to the other. Lighting, if you're very nervous, it gives you that feeling that we've probably all experienced on a sunny day and a cloud comes overhead and you feel everything is just darkened and dimmed a bit. And that actually is what's implemented. But then also you get a bit of feedback now. And we don't want people to feel as if they're being overly judged. So we're not going to say you're more biased to this side, but we'll say we notice you spent a little more time with one than the other. And then the epilogue and the ending, both the kind of narrative, you know, the kind of text that Karim tells you at the very end that can change based on whether you progressed from being you know, sort of more apparently nervous or biased to less. Basically, whatever that trajectory is can spark different kind of endings and then also impact how you see yourself in this kind of final setting. After you've met all the fighters, the enemy ends in a final room where there's a big mirror. But instead of seeing yourself in the mirror, you see one of the fighters. And then you meet that fighter's enemy again. And you hear some final thoughts. There are six possible epilogues, one for each fighter. And the one that you hear is determined by all those cues that the system was collecting as you went through. How long are you engaged with one fighter? How engaged are you? Are you looking in his eyes or are you looking on the sides? Are you keeping looking at the other one while you look at one? Uh, what is the distance you have? Are you nodding or not nodding? Are you still? Uh, I mean, there is a lot of elements there that we, we, we're following up. Uh, and then at the end, we're trying to see if out of those six, six encounters, is there one that was really different? One you, you know, one that, w- that, that, that would come out and says, well, cognitively, You've been acting so differently with this one compared to the, the, the five others. Okay, that guy is going to come and talk to you. And all of this is, is really meant to make you wonder and scratch your head. And if two people or three people go together, I bet the first question they have when they go out is, who did you become in the mirror? And why? What do you think? And what is this? And what is my relation to the other? I don't understand. It's like, okay, fine. Don't understand. Wonder. Start thinking about the relation you have with others. Uh, Because it's key in the world we live today. I went through the exhibit twice, and I met different fighters at the end each time. And I think I can see the intention behind the whole Rashomon strategy. It's to get you to acknowledge that your biases and beliefs shape your perceptions of the world and your behavior toward other people, which is useful, if a little uncomfortable. But the thing that really stuck with me after seeing the enemy was the realism and naturalness of the fighters. It wasn't just that they looked like real people. It was that they acted real, almost like characters on the Star Trek holodeck. 
That connection that Ben Khalifa said he wanted to create when two people look each other in the eye, it was really happening. I mean, I felt after a few minutes of listening to one of these gang members, you began to feel quite sorry for him. And you really, there's a certain poignancy to the life experience that he's describing. I, I, I found myself then and after experiencing this, thinking a lot about what this same material, uh, Ben Khalifa's material, might have been like if I had been encountering it in the conventional way. For example, as a photojournalistic essay. You could easily imagine what that would look like. You know, lots of images, lots of text, and lots of quotations. Honestly, I don't think it would have had anything like the impact on me that listening to these characters looking me in the eye and talking about their experience had. And, and so for me, there's something about being able to empathize using VR, which I found very striking and which I think is a really interesting potential for the future. Now, that word empathize is the key to why I think the enemy is so groundbreaking and why it might be a good idea to step back and ask how we want to use VR technology in the future. And I mean, there's one other thing that I really want to say about this. I think it's to do with why I was so keen to take the exhibition. It's a kind of an obvious point, but maybe it's worth actually saying, you know, we seem to be living, especially in the US right now, but quite honestly, you could make the point in many different places. We seem to be living in times when people are pulling apart into their rival camps, into their rival groups. And empathy across group lines seems to be in short supply. So I was hopeful in a rather idealistic way that we might be experimenting here with the ability to reach out and to break down barriers that seem to be growing up everywhere. It's remarkable that we should be worried about that in 2017, but I think a lot of people are. One honestly can imagine an America in the not so distant future that might be in need of help with its empathy of this of these kinds and if VR could do some of that well and good John Durant isn't the only person to express those kinds of hopes if you follow the news about VR you've probably seen a TED talk from 2015 by this guy named Chris Milk he's the founder of a production company called Within formerly known as Verse that works with other media companies to make 360 degree films and in his TED talk Milk called VR the ultimate empathy machine. We went to a Syrian refugee camp in Jordan in December and shot the story of a 12-year-old girl there named Sidra. And her and her family fled Syria through the desert into Jordan, and she's been living in this uh, camp for the last year and a half. My name is Sidra. I am 12 years old. I am in the fifth grade. I am from Syria in the Dar'a province in Khil City. I have lived here in the Zaatari camp in Jordan for the last year and a half. I have a big family, three brothers. One is a baby. He cries a lot. I asked my father if I cried when I was a baby, and he says I did not. I think I was a stronger baby than my brother. So, when you're inside of the headset, you're not seeing it like this. You're looking around through this world. You'll notice you see full 360 degrees in all directions. Um, and when you're sitting there in her room, watching her, you're not watching it through a television screen. You're not watching it through a window. You're sitting there with her. When you look down, 
you're sitting on the same ground that she's sitting on. And because of that, you feel her humanity in a deeper way. You empathize with her in a deeper way. And that's where I think we just start to scratch the surface of the true power of virtual reality. It's not a video game peripheral. It connects humans to other humans in a profound way that I've never seen before in any other form of media. And it can change people's perception of each other. And that's how I think virtual reality has the potential to actually change the world. So it's a machine. But through this machine, we become more compassionate, we become more empathetic, and we become more connected. And ultimately, we become more human. A machine that makes people more human. Sounds great, right? What could be the problem with that? Well, I think there are times when we should celebrate technological achievements, and there are other times when we should be a little more cautious. Every media technology ends up being used for mischief, as well as for more constructive ends. Just look at how hackers and far-right activists exploited YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and Google during the 2016 election to spread lies and generate outrage. We're going to be living with the consequences of that particular fiasco for years. If virtual reality can be used to generate sympathy for gang members in El Salvador or Syrian refugee girls in Jordan, then it's pretty obvious that the technology could also be used to stir up anger and even hatred. Over the past year or two, a bunch of news organizations have been scrambling to make 360-degree films that document various conflicts around the world, including, for example, the genocidal assault on the Rohingya, a Muslim minority group in Myanmar. Now imagine just for a moment that the Buddhist majority in Myanmar wanted to bolster their argument, which is that the Rohingya residents of Myanmar are actually illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. The government in Myanmar already blames the Rohingya for alleged attacks on border police. It's not hard to imagine them manufacturing their own VR film to dramatize their version of events. To be clear, nobody's done anything like this yet. I'm just saying, we live in a time when Twitter has mutated into a megaphone for a narcissistic president and when a crazy Facebook post about an alleged child sex ring can inspire a conspiracy theorist to shoot up a pizza parlor. So it's hard to imagine that VR won't be misused at some point. And when I put this point to Ben Khalifa, he basically agreed with me. It is an empathy machine, but it's also a propaganda machine. It's also something that can divide us much more efficiently than whatever we have. So um, am I scared by it? Yes, because it's... it's because if I look how medium have been used for the last 40, 50 years, it's been used to sell us a dream that we can't access. It's been dividing us. It's been um, uh, creating stereotypes. You know, it, it's, it's not a medium anymore. It's just a brainwashing machine. Um, so if you can create empathy, you can brainwash the people too. That would be my point. I can't tell you who will be the first to weaponize virtual reality. But now that I've witnessed its power, I'm pretty sure that somebody will. To protect us from those misuses, we've been relying so far on the journalistic integrity of people like Ben Khalifa. And obviously, he's doing amazing work. But at the same time, it might not be a bad idea to start promoting VR literacy. The same way that groups like Snopes and factcheck.org promote general media literacy. Just because VR makes it easier to look someone in the eye, step into their shoes, and feel what they feel, doesn't mean we should stop trusting our own senses and our own sensibilities. 
and you don't have to slide all the way to the propaganda scenario to be concerned about whether virtual reality will stay true to actual reality and what happens when it doesn't. Fox Harrell at MIT makes an interesting point. I, I feel like on the media studies side, it's more about pushing this medium, the way that relates to other media, and you know, saying, how can this convey this story in a novel way that really serves and honors the content? And in particular, some of the questions that are raised for journalism, because in journalism, there's this idea of journalistic integrity and kind of fidelity to the subject matter. And, and so this idea that these, one thing you're getting is the the body language that the combatants actually express and the CGI characters that this body language is mapped onto express things that actually happened in the field in East Congo, in Gaza, El Salvador. But on the other hand, when you approach them and they put up the hand to stop you or when you move and their eyes follow you, that's something that's built into the system. In one sense, scanning the fighters for the enemy and recreating them as 3D avatars also meant fictionalizing them since some of the avatar's movements and gestures are computer-generated rather than being drawn from real life. And so to find that appropriate balance and meaning between having that kind of journalistic bias towards this is their authentic you know, body language and way of carrying self, but still make it respond dynamically to users, I feel like that's where new ground is being broken in terms of journalism and also op opening up new tricky questions to resolve. In The Enemy, Ben Khalifa and Harrell are careful about how they use the new technology of VR. And as with all good journalism and all good art, part of the point is to open up tricky new questions. But how those questions get resolved will depend partly on us, the audience. When we step into the empathy machine, we'll need to remember to bring our skepticism with us. Soonish is written and produced by me, Wade Rausch. The show's theme is by Graham Gordon Ramsey. Additional music this week from Title Card Music in Boston, Javier Suarez, and Lee Rosevear. This week's show is brought to you exclusively by our supporters on Patreon. Making a show that tries to be thoughtful about the future takes time and money. And I couldn't be more grateful to the listeners who've shown through Patreon that they believe in what I'm doing. Thank you so, so much. If you'd like to help support Soonish, please go to patreon.com soonish and check out the awesome rewards available to folks who pledge $1 per episode, $3, $5, or more. You can subscribe to Soonish on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And speaking of Apple Podcasts, I'd be deeply grateful if you could go there on your phone or your computer and leave a rating and a review for the show. I wrote a review of The Enemy for the January 2018 issue of MIT Technology Review magazine, and you can find a link to that piece on our website, soonishpodcast.org. Soonish is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of great story-driven podcasts. And today I'm super excited to tell you about the newest member of the collective, the podcast Hi-Fi Nation from producer Barry Lamb. Hi-Fi is spelled with a PH, as in philosophy. And Hi-Fi Nation is a beautiful show that takes deep dives into the big questions in philosophy through human stories. My favorite recent episode was called Bottom of the Curve. It takes a gentle but piercing look at the phenomenon of the midlife crisis. That might sound like a depressing topic, but Barry talks with smart and witty folks like MIT philosopher Kiran Satia, who actually helped me to start looking forward to the upward part of my own curve. Hi-Fi Nation has earned tons of positive reviews since it debuted in January 2017. And I really want to welcome Barry into Hub & Spoke. 
I hope you'll subscribe to the show and check out all 13 episodes at hifination.org. Special thanks this week to Nick Anderson, Tamar Avishai, Martha Davis, Zachary Davis, John Durant, Fox Harrell, Karim Ben Khalifa, Mark Polovsky, Joel Roston, David Rotman, and Andrew Willis. And thank you for listening. I'll be back with a new episode soonish.